Hi there and welcome. The First Christian Church podcast ministry features the teaching and preaching of the First Christian Church in downtown Roseburg, Oregon. Here's today's message. We are in Acts chapter number 20. Acts chapter number 20. And we are going through a a series through the book of Acts. It's verse by verse. It's taken us a little bit of time. We started it last year. We're in Acts chapter 20, and as we looked at Acts, we've kind of identified this as the purpose of Acts. Acts tells us how the kingdom directs the expansion, or tells us how God directs the expansion of his kingdom throughout the whole world through a spirit-empowered church, despite internal obstacles and external opposition. And so today, the message is entitled, The Best Sermon Ever. That's quite a lofty proclamation at the beginning of a sermon. But this is the title of the message anyways, the best sermon ever. Uh, Bruce Russell, who is our pastor, two or three pastors ago, and he pastored our church for 25 years. I love his line. He said, if you want to, someone asked him, would you just tell me when your best sermons are and I'll come to those Sundays. And Bruce would say, if you want to hear my best sermons, you have to come every week because I don't know when I'm going to give them. But today is the best sermon ever. We'll talk about that here in a moment. We're going to jump right in in verse number one today. Acts chapter 20, verse one. Read those first four words with me. Ready, begin. After the uproar ceased. The uproar. This happens, right, in the book of Acts. Things go well. The gospel's being preached. People come to Jesus. They're baptized. And then all of a sudden, there's usually a small group of people that represents this uproar, right? And the uproar grows, and sometimes it stays small, but sometimes it grows and it turns into a mob, and sometimes there's riots. Luke tells us, who's writing this book in Acts 20, hey, after the uproar ceased, which means in Acts 19, there was this uproar. For those of you who remember what happened last week is Paul preached, people were coming to Jesus, and then all of a sudden there was imitators of the apostles. They would see how the apostles would heal people and uh, restore health and restore different ways of healing people in their sicknesses. And so all of a sudden there was imitators, and these imitators tried to do what the apostles did in healing someone from their demon possession and it failed miserably. Alongside that same group of, same sequence of events, the, uh, the temple merchants for the goddess Diana or Artemis, depending on the translation that you would use, they were losing sales because so many people were coming to Jesus. What a beautiful recognition of the gospel, by the way, that so many people came to Jesus that all of a sudden what they used to use for worship, what they used to use as their fix, what they used to use for hope, what they used to use to put all their faith into was no longer necessary because the gospel was enough. That's beautiful. So, so many people were coming to Jesus that the Ephesians, the temple merchants for the goddess Diana, they would make these trinkets and they would make these items that people would take home in order to worship them at home. And now business was declining. And so they got upset. They got to a position where they, they were, uh, they were uh, arguing with one another. They created a mob-like experience. This is what Luke is referring to when he says, after the uproar ceased. Now, to be fair, this happens everywhere Paul goes. Paul preaches the gospel. People come to to the saving knowledge of who Jesus is. And then usually there's a group of Gentiles or a group of Jews, uh, people that just weren't happy that the status quo was being changed and Paul would have to leave town. 
Now here he had spent two very fruitful years in Ephesus, but now it's time to go. So let's keep reading. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for where? Macedonia. When he had gone through these regions and had given them up much encouragement, he came to Greece. Uh, Verse 3, there he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews, again, I told you, this happens everywhere he goes, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. So Paul would spend his time working with churches he had already established, strengthening the disciples. What's kind of interesting in this verse, and I'm going to take a little bit of a rabbit trail this morning. That's funny because I talked about a chocolate rabbit earlier. Didn't mean to say that. Um, We're going to take a little bit of a rabbit trail this morning because oftentimes people that question um, the Bible's truth will point out what they believe to be inconsistencies. And if there's an inconsistency in Scripture, then the logic follows there can be inconsistency with the authors. And if there's inconsistency with the authors, well, then now there's inconsistency with God. Do you see how that works? So there's a couple of verses here. And again, it, uh, for us who, who name the name of Jesus, we're going to look at that and go, oh, well, yeah, that makes sense. But for people who might struggle with the the Bible's uh, legitimacy, this might be a fruitful bit of of a diversion just for a couple of minutes. There's a puzzle here in that, let's look at Romans 13 real quick. Romans chapter uh, 15, verse 19 says this. So from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, 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 user's choice, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. So it's interesting. Paul says, again, in another book, when he's talking to the church at Rome, I went from Jerusalem all the way to Illyricum. Now, here's the thing. There's no mention of Illyricum anywhere else in Scripture. In fact, geographically, it seems to be inconsistent with the missionary journeys we're looking at now. Paul had gone over into this region, never mentions this city, but these two or three verses here where it says uh, he spent three months there, uh, uh, verse two it says when he had gone through those regions and given them much encouragement, he came to Greece, verse three there he spent three months, and when a plot was made by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to go to Macedonia. During these travels is most likely where he would have gone to that area. The area he's referencing in Romans 15 is modern-day Albania. It's on the east, course, uh, east coast of the Adriatic Sea. Uh, mainland of Italy would be westward across the water. And the mention of this city in Romans 15 reminds us about a couple of things. Uh, whenever there's an inconsistency in Scripture, what it forces us as the Bible uh, as the Bible reader and the one who's studying Scripture is... When you see an inconsistency, it's time to dig. It's time to dig a little bit deeper until there's a little bit more knowledge. The other thing it reminds us is that this is, the book of Acts is a wonderful record of the church, but it is by no means a complete accounting of all that God did through his people in the first century. In fact, even in the life of the Apostle Paul, there's a lot of space where his life is not described 
Um, and so there's a lot that he did that's not recorded in the book of Acts. There's a lot the church did that's not recorded in the book of Acts. Even when you look at the life of Jesus, John said, my goodness, if I were to record every single thing that I saw John do, or Jesus do with my very own eyes, John basically says, I could write and write and write, and the world itself couldn't contain the volumes of books of everything that I saw. So while we look at Scripture, especially a historical narrative like Acts, it's important for us to realize this is Luke's accounting of events, but it's not a complete history of everything that might have happened during, those, during that time. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's, just a, it's, it's, it's good for us to know that as we're reading through Scripture. So the Jews are plotting to, uh, against him as he was about to sail to Syria. He decided to run through Macedonia. And now we get this list of names, which are important for us this morning. Verse 4, Sopator, the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him. And of Thessalonians, Aristarchus, and Secundus, and Gaines of Derby and Timothy, and the Asians... Tychicus and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. Look at those names again in verse 4. Everyone say Aristarchus and Secundus. These two I just want to point out to you. It's a beautiful, beautiful description of the church here that, again, Luke would be writing to a very specific group of audience. They would understand the magnitude of these two names being side by side. Aristarchus. Aristarchus is a name connected with the aristocracy, the ruling class, likely coming from a wealthy and powerful family. So when you see his name there, you think nobility, you think influence, you think power, um, uh, influence, um, um, nobility, uh, aristocracy. You understand what we're saying? He's just part of that elite level in society. Right next to him, Aristarchus, and who's the second guy? Secundus. This is a common name for a slave. Slaves were not often called by their true names. They were called by their ranking in the household. Secundus was likely the second ranking slave in the household. So now it's just a beautiful, beautiful description of disciples who are traveling with Paul to spread the gospel. And in the same breath, Luke says, there's Aristarchus, nobility, influence, power, leverage, and Secundus, a slave, together working for the common goal of spreading the gospel. If you're following in your notes today, when we embrace the fact that the gospel is for everyone, everyone becomes a part of spreading the gospel. Isn't that beautiful? This is a massive, massive deal for first century Christianity. And when you think of Christians from both high and low stations in life, serving the Lord together from Thessalonica and helping the Apostle Paul together, this is a massive deal. Now, we may not understand this because we'd like to think that you can pull yourself up by the bootstraps and enter any place in society. We try to treat everyone the same. But if you put yourself in their positions, we're talking about in the same congregation, slaves would be worse with people who are their masters. Men and women together worshiping. Uh, Jews 
and Greeks, right? Jews, another word for that for us as we study uh, historical context, Jews would be the insiders, right? Worshiping alongside of Greeks who would have been the outsiders. So insiders and outsiders, Jews and Greeks, the Gentiles worshiping together. And now in spreading the gospel, here's Aristarchus, who is used to being educated, who is used to having all the opportunities given to him, who is used to having power, used to having leverage. And he's sitting right next to Secundus, who is the second most ranking slave in a household, and together they're spreading the gospel to spread the message that this, everyone is welcome in the gospel. The gospel's for everyone. Now what that means, because we've said that all through the book of Acts, that the gospel is for everyone, we must also further believe that everyone is now able to share the gospel. So this morning, it doesn't matter what your resume is. It doesn't matter what your biography is. Uh, it doesn't matter what you bring to the table. You're included in everyone. And so if you name Jesus as your Savior, if you declared him, with your, uh, declared him Lord as your life, that means you get to take your resume with you, your biography with you. You get to stamp Jesus' name on it and says, I am now ordained to spread the gospel. I get to share the gospel just like anyone else. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture of what the early church was battling. Now, here's the thing. This is also why there were so many riots. This is also why people got upset all the time when Paul preached the gospel, because they recognized you can't just name Jesus the Lord of your life and nothing changes in society. In fact, when you do name Jesus as Lord of your life, it changes everything. And you're now telling me that slaves and the nobility can operate together? You're telling me that men and women are equal footing? You're telling me now Jews and Greeks can worship together? My goodness, Paul, this is where the tension would come from. Does that make sense now? So everywhere Paul went, this would happen. The traditional barriers to this kind of worship with different classes worshiping together were obliterated by the gospel message that Jesus is for everyone. And if he's for everyone, and if the gospel is for everyone, that means we all get to share in spreading the gospel. It's beautiful. Uh, Let's keep going. Verse 6. So, but we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. And in five days, we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. What's the second word in that sentence, in that verse? We. It's just an interesting note. Luke now has joined them. Luke is the author, right? Remember, we took about a six-chapter period where Luke was writing about them and they, and they went, and now they went there. Now it says, now we went, because Luke is now with them. Just interesting. Verse 7, on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. If anyone's sleeping next to you, this is the time to wake them up. It's going to get a little hairy, okay? It's going to be a little bumpy ride. Um, By the way, this is the first mention. Well, I don't know if it's the first mention, but it's the first certain example we have of Christians making a practice to gather on the first day of the week. Pretty interesting, huh? Uh, What time was this service? Yeah. Service was on Sunday nights. Uh, It's it's kind of a good reminder to us... (laughs) We like to think that we're doing everything exactly how the apostles did it back in the book of Acts. Man, I'll be honest, we're trying to, more times than not, we're just making this up as we go. Um, 
he, they met at night. The reason they met at night is because what was Saturday? That means on Sunday you still went to work. So they would meet on the first day that we get night because most of them would work during the day. Um, and so, you know, if a church decides to have a service that's not exactly at Sunday morning at 1030, I mean, are they doing it wrong? Yeah, but no, I'm just kidding. Uh, no, it's just this is what we've uh, kind of settled into as, a, as our customs and tradition. But it looks like the early church met at night, which is interesting. Not only that, Paul didn't care what time it was. Look at the last line. He prolonged his sermon, his speech, until midnight. Um, Paul sensed the need to preach to them. He preached roughly, probably, at least four hours, if not six. They probably met at six, most historians would say. So just thank me after the service when we're done, you know, and that'd be nice. Uh, verse 8, there were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered, right? And a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. We're going to get all the giggles out now because this gets to a really serious point. But this is a comical scene, right? This poor guy named Eutychus. I was talking to Steve before church. And I said, no one names their kids Eutychus anymore. I wonder why. Eutychus sitting at the window. And what did they had just done in verse 8? They had, uh, they had uh, lit all the candles, right? Candles give off heat. Might have been a little, a little warm. Uh, he sank into a deep sleep. Paul still talked longer. Uh, Luke's probably writing this all down as it's happening. Become over, and being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story. Was taken up dead. But Paul went down, bent over him, and taking him in his arms said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. Verse 11, but when Paul had gone up and broken bread and eaten, he picked up where he left off. He conversed with him a long while until daybreak and so departed, and they took the youth alive and were not a little, com com they were not a little comforted. <laughs> it's just an interesting uh, episode. Um, you know, one of the reasons we go verse by verse through scriptures um, is, is stories like this are, are, um, can be used just kind of out of context. And, and sometimes we'll take a story like this and we'll say, you know, if you're sleeping in church, this is a, this is a vile sin against God. Um, if you are, if you're preaching too long, maybe that's the sin. I don't know. Um, but we'll take a story like this and, and, and when I grew up, this kind of story would be used to kind of be um, weaponized, right? And, and can I tell you, man, if, if you've worked all week and you come to church and you are a little sleepy, take the nap. Just take it. It doesn't bother me. Um, I, remember, I remember when I was in college, um, I worked, my dad was very, very good about making sure I knew how to work. And so I had a couple of jobs. Um, one of them was at night during security. Uh, doing security for a few hours. I used to get off like at 2 o'clock in the morning, uh, get about four or five hours of sleep, rush to class, only to sleep in class, um, get out of class in the afternoon, and then I would go tutor kids at one of the schools until about 5 or 6, 
have dinner, squeeze in whatever I could, and do that, you know, three or four nights a week. And oftentimes on Sunday mornings, I'd just be out cold in church, man. And uh, my, my, my pastor at the time was kind of, um, he'd wave his hands a lot and raise his voice a lot. And there would be several times I would hold, be holding a cup of coffee or something. I'd be startled and just chaos would ensue. Um, I don't want you to ever feel like this is a, um, yeah, this, is, this, is, this story shouldn't be meant to be weaponized against you. Uh, what's interesting is what Paul kind of does in this story. So that you have the late hour, you have the heat, you have the fumes from the oil, young man's asleep. By the way, in the Greek, it says uh, the words that are being used, Eutychus fought to stay awake. He was just tired. They had worked all day and now going through a six-hour at least message, the poor guy was tired, right? Um, Paul's comment that the boy's life was in him refers to his condition after he administered to him. Again, if, if, if Paul was so angry that he fell asleep in church, I don't think he would raise him from the dead also. That seems like a mismixed message there. So Paul receives the gift of faith from God, senses that God would raise this boy from the dead. He does. My favorite part is Paul just keeps on preaching. He has a meal. Maybe they took communion. This is a good time for communion. You just saw a resurrection. This is a good time for communion. I'm going to keep on preaching. And he just kept on preaching. It's very interesting. Uh, verse 13, let's move on. But going ahead to the ship, we sent sail for Assos, intending to take Paul aboard there, for so he had raged, intending himself to go by land. So it looks like Paul stayed at the last possible moment. I think it's to make sure Eutychus was okay. He was completely restored, conscious, and healthy. And now he's going, uh, took a shortcut by land to join the ship. Uh, verse 14, stay with me. When he met us at Assos, we took him on board and we went to Mytilene. And sailing from there, we came to the following day opposite Chios. The next day we touched at Samos and the day after we went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he may not have time so that he might not have time to spend in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. So Paul wanted to get there. His intentions wasn't to slight the church at Ephesus, but he was doing the math, and he thought, I want to get to Jerusalem as fast as possible so I can celebrate the day of Pentecost. We come to verse 17. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. Paul couldn't make a brief trip to Ephesus, but he wanted to pour into the leaders, so he asked the leaders to meet him. Verse 18, when they came to him, he said, oh, did I skip it? Yep, verse 18. Uh, when they came to him, he said, you yourselves know how I lived among you from the whole time, from the first day that I set foot in Asia. Look at this next verse, verse 19. Serving the Lord with all humility, with tears, with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house. We're going to unpack some of those words in a minute where it says from house to house. This is the implication that the Ephesian church met in different homes. They were organized logically in house churches. And so most likely the early elders were responsible for a different house. That's how they probably organized it. He goes on to say, testifying both to the Jews and to the Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus. Now, most of the time when we think about Paul, we think about this guy who is passionately an evangelist. In other words, someone who just preached the gospel, having uh, new people come to him. But here we kind of see his shepherding heart. 
his heart to pastor people, to shepherd people, to pour into people, which was important for him as a leader and as a shepherd. It's the only time that Luke records an entire speech from Paul, which is interesting. And he, in this little speech, Paul calls attention to himself first. Look back at verse 18. He says, you know, you yourselves know how I lived among you from the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Assos. Serving the Lord with all humility. Paul didn't act like a religious celebrity necessarily and expect people to serve and honor them, but he served the Lord with all humility. Um, this is quite the departure in character from what we knew about him who was once Saul, isn't it? So now he's serving the Lord with all humility and with all tears. What does it look like to serve God with tears? It means you serve him in the difficult times. It means you get to serve him in the, in, in the periods and the seasons of times where you just don't understand. It means you get to serve him in days that are cloudy spiritually. It means you get to serve him in cloud, days that are full of chaos and um, just uncertainty. You serve him in tears. He goes on in verse 19. Let me put it up there for you. Uh, serving the Lord with all humility, with tears, and with, what's the next word? With trials. In the middle of the most difficult moments of your life, he kept on serving. Um, yeah, those are just difficult ways to serve God. But there's a faithfulness that Paul is talking about. Um, to serve God with humility, as he says, means that you're probably in a season where you have been humbled, right? So to serve him with humility means that you're probably in a season of your life where you've been humbled. To serve him in tears means you're probably in a season of your life where you can't stop crying. To serve him through trials means you're going through a period of your life where maybe relationships or circumstances are just falling apart. And Paul says, boy, I did this. You know, you know my resume. I'm all in, and this is the proof that I'm all in, that I don't just serve the Lord during beautiful days. I don't just serve the Lord during sunny days. I don't just serve the Lord when things are going well. Um, in fact, every time I do serve the Lord, it feels like trials, tears, or I'm being humbled. I think it's just important to recognize that just because you're being humbled in life, just, be, just because you're shedding tears in life, or just because you're going through a trial, doesn't mean you're outside the will of God. It likely means you are just needing to stay faithful where you are in the will of God. Um, yesterday was the year anniversary that we said goodbye to our foster daughter. And many of you know we had her for nine months. And can I just tell you, it stinks. And she's in a beautiful place, and her grandma is awesome. We get updates all the time, and she, uh, she's going to be two years old next month. And it's really hard to think that it's been a year. 
I just, as your pastor, I want to remind you, man, that just because we're in a trial, we're full of tears, or we're being in a place where we're just humbled, doesn't mean God is punishing you. It doesn't mean that you're outside of the will of God, unless there's a sin issue we're not talking about, but it doesn't mean necessarily you're outside the will of God. You know what it likely means? It likely means you're just living life. And it likely means this is a season where God is asking you just to be faithful. Because with every tear, there's a Savior who sheds a tear with you. With every moment that you're being humbled, there's a Savior who's right there next to you. And with every trial, there's a Savior who's walking with you. It's interesting because for Paul, it meant this. Paul didn't limit his message, nor did he limit his audience. What we mean by that is this. We've talked about the audience in terms of the fact that Paul uh, shared the gospel to everyone, right? It's beautiful. We have this, um, uh, we have this uh, Aristarchus and we have Secundus serving the Lord together. He didn't limit his audience. He would preach to the Jews, and when they got mad at him and kicked him out of town, what would he do? He'd go across the street and preach to the Gentiles, right? He just, he just kept on letting people, everyone. But he didn't limit the message either. either. What that means for us is this. We do ourselves a disservice when we think that following Jesus is just full of sunny days. We do ourselves a disservice when we try to live out this life that says there's no trials, there's no tears, there's no uh, uh, moments where you're being humbled. In fact, when you come to Jesus, everything else is just wiped away and everything else is easy. We do ourselves a disservice. And here's the thing. We do a disservice to the people that are around us because it is easy it is easy to stand straight and walk through life with a smile when it's sunny. It's really hard to walk through mud. We were at the Tulip Festival yesterday and we walked through mud. It's hard. I have these pair of shoes that I use like once a year when I'm in mud. Because that's all I really want to be in mud is like once a year. And walking in mud is hard. It's slippery. You might get mud, you got, might get dirty. I don't know how far I'm going to use this metaphor, but just stay with me. Um, it's not pleasant. You have to watch where you're walking. It doesn't mean you're not making progress. It doesn't mean that you're uh, that 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 the journey is wasted. It just means we need to stay faithful in those moments. And so it is a disservice as your pastor for me to tell you. Well, you shouldn't have any trials, you shouldn't have any tears, and you shouldn't ever be humbled in life. And if you are, it's only because of sin. And if you aren't, it's because you're living this perfect life. That's a disservice. We can't limit the message. We can't limit the audience. We can't paint a picture that is not realistic for people to understand. Paul could solemnly say before these elders of the Ephesian church that he kept back nothing that was helpful. So through his humility, through his tears, through his trials, he just remained faithful so they could see his example, not so they could emulate him, but that they could worship and praise a God who's a God through every season of our life. Verse 22, let's continue. Now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there. Paul didn't know what was ahead of him. He had no reason to believe it was bad. He didn't know if there was trouble ahead. Verse 23 says, though, I skipped it again, sorry. Verse 23 says, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions wait me. Paul recognized the danger ahead. And apparently he had received many words of prophecy telling him this danger already. Yet he was not set off the track by danger 
but was willing to lay down his life for the gospel of the grace of God. We come to this beautiful declaration from Paul in verse 24. In fact, let's read it together. Ready, begin. I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. He says, yeah, I've been humbled. My walk has been full of tears. It's been full of trials. But here's what I really want to accomplish. I just want to finish my course and ministry that I received from the Lord to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. In the same breath that Paul talks about being humbled, trials, tears, he said, if not by the grace, the gospel of the grace of God. He recognized that even in that moment, he was sustained by the grace of God. This is not, it's, it's, an, interesting, it's an interesting way for Paul to describe it. Um, I do not account my life. So he talks about himself as an accountant, weighs the credits and the expenses. And in the end, he says, I don't count my life as dear or valued or precious compared to my God and how I can serve him. Right? And then he talks about himself as a runner, um, something Paul and I have in common. And um, <laughs> hurts when you laugh, just saying. Um, as a runner who, who runs a race to finish, having this goal to pursue, and nothing would keep Paul from finishing the race with joy. Not being humbled, not the tears, not the trials, nothing would keep him from doing that. He had this race to run. I want to finish this. I want to do it with joy. This is my life's pursuit. This is not my best sermon ever. The best sermon ever is a life that lives out the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's an old, old Southern gospel song that says, you're the, you are the only Bible some will ever read. Meaning that the way you live your life will be the greatest word from God, the greatest Bible, the greatest sermon that they ever read. And while we come on church on Sundays to hear sermons, the fact of the matter is we live our life out, and the way we live our life out are sermons to the rest of us. There is uh, an old story of St. Francis of Assisi, and St. Francis would, uh, was taking one of his young um, interns, I guess is the word, and uh, was going to another village and says, get ready, we're going to go preach this weekend. And the intern was very, very excited. And they left and they traveled. And St. Francis stopped at someone's house because they needed help in the yard. He went to another home and visited with a, uh, a woman who had lost her husband. He went and had another conversations with people at the neighborhood town square. And all they did all weekend was just have these conversations with people. And they went home after the weekend, and the intern said, I thought we were coming here to preach this weekend. And St. Francis said, we did. We did. 
I want to encourage you that the life we get to live during these really difficult moments, Paul is somewhat of a rock star. And, and, and the problem with um, viewing him as a rock star in the New Testament <clears throat> is it doesn't force us to evaluate the emotions that he might have lived with. Here's a guy that persecuted the church all his life, had every standard that the early church would want in an early leader. He persecuted people. He consented to the death of Stephen, and he went door to door breathing threatenings to other Christians, comes to Jesus and is saved, wants to give his whole life to Jesus, um, is, is, is tutored by a guy named Ananias, which we'll meet later, uh, again, I should say, next week. Ananias is like, I don't, I don't want to tutor this guy. I don't want to be his disciple partner. I don't want to be his accountability partner. He used to kill Christians. Ananias stays with him, disciples him. Paul wants to be a part of the early church movement, wants to preach the gospel, and no one will have him. No one will have him. Ends up going and spending time with Barnabas. We're not quite sure how long, but for years, he's behind the scenes. He's behind the scenes. He's getting discipled. He's getting trained. He's being humbled. And all of a sudden, he gets to now share in the ministry. And I want you to think about it. So here he is. He wants to be a part of the ministry. He's he recognizing the error of his own ways. He's preaching the gospel to people he previously used to threaten. And he's coming to the towns to preach them the glorious news of Jesus. And every single time he gets to a town, they throw him out. Every time. Has a disagreement with his ministry partner. Has to separate there and now is on his own. Every single time he goes and he preaches the beautiful, redemptive, restorative power of the gospel, the grace of God, that kind of gospel, he gets kicked out of town. The Jews can't stand him and the Greeks hate him. Save for a few people that come to Jesus. This is Paul constantly being shut out, constantly being isolated, constantly being rejected, constantly being said no to. So while being humbled in tears and trials, he strives to live out this faithful, faithful walk that simply says, man, all of this stuff is temporary. I'm not going to choose to value any of it except for embracing what God has called me to do and testifying to the goodness of God. That's the best sermon they'll ever hear. So for you and I, we've been humbled in life. And if you haven't, stick around. (laughs) It'll happen. You will go through tears in your life when you don't know what you did wrong. You don't know why you can't get what you think is rightfully yours. um, Why you can't have the relationship you're seeking. Why you can't have the family that you're seeking. Why you can't have... The joy that you're seeking, you'll you'll have to walk through tears. You have to walk through trials. It might be financial trials. It might be trials at work. It might just be trials at home, and you have to go through a relationship. You'll have those trials, and what God is asking us to do is to walk faithfully through it, recognizing that all of the stuff here is temporary so we could pursue simply the goodness of God and testifying to that gospel. Charles Spurgeon had some amazing things to say about the gospel. Linda, would you put up the next slide, please? He said this. It's kind of hard to read. I will quote it this week on our social media so you can see it there. He says this. There used to be a gospel in the world, 
which consisted of facts which Christians never questioned. There was once in the church a gospel which believers hugged to their hearts as if it were their soul's life. There used to be a gospel in the world which provoked enthusiasm and commanded sacrifice. Tens of thousands have met together to hear this gospel at peril of their lives. Men and women to the teeth of tyrants have proclaimed it and suffered the loss of all things and gone to prison and to death for it, singing psalms all the while. Is there not such a gospel remaining? The challenge for us is to figure out how to make this faith of ours more than a Sunday morning event before a daily walk, right? Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you made a decision for Christ or would like prayer with someone from our church family, we would love to connect with you. You can message us on Facebook by searching Roseburg First Christian Church, or you can email us directly at roseburgfcc at gmail.com. In addition, if you're listening to this message on Apple or Spotify, we invite you to like, subscribe, rate, and review this podcast and share it on social media so others can be blessed as well. God bless you and have a beautiful day.